Hey, what's going on, everyone? Welcome to a special episode of Chile Talk. I am your host, Hella Chile. Today, I got a very special guest. Her name is Chaya Chaum from uh, the Bronx, and um, she is the yeah. founder of Mekong NYC. Mekong NYC aims to improve the quality of life of the Southeast Asian community in the Bronx and throughout New York City by achieving equity through community organizing and healing, promoting arts, culture, and language, and creating a safety net by improving access to essential services, social services. The Southeast Asian community in the Bronx primarily consists of Cambodian Americans and Vietnamese Americans. Mekong mm -hmm. NYC is where history and culture are valued and learned, where history and culture are living, where people's needs are met, where people are united through struggle, and where the people feel liberated. Yes. Welcome, Chaya. How are you? I'm good. Thank you for having me. Thank you for being my guest. First, I want to thank you for yes. squeezing me in in your uh, busy schedule. <laughs> and I uh, also want to, you know, thank you for all that you do for the community and mm. uh, especially like the New York, my community. And, um, you know, and I've, mm. I've, I've always wanted to speak to you. And um, I know that I've, I've been mm. getting a lot of invites like every year, every my New Year, I miss an event in New York City. <laughs> I know. So I'm like, I feel so bad busy. because, you know, I'm always home, my hometown Seattle. So if you don't know, so I'm always going home to visit yep. my, my parents and stuff like that. As you should. That's and, what this good Cambodian son does. Yeah. So, but, um, you know, I definitely want to, you know, get more involved and, uh, you know, mm. in, and meet the, the Khmer community here in New York, sure. you know, mm -hmm. and, um, I'd love to learn more about you on a personal level oh, and, you know, just sure. give you a, if you want to just introduce yourself, give a little bio so that people know. Yeah. Um, so uh, I was born in Cambodia in 1978. And so I had a refugee birthday, like a lot of folks who were born during the Khmer Rouge regime. And so I tell this story all the time. My my um on my 30th birthday, my husband and kids decided to throw this like huge surprise party for me. And my dad was like, just looking very uneasy. And this story has a point. Um, so he was looking very uneasy. And he was like, you know, I just want you to know that you were actually born in 1979 and not 1978. And I was like, oh, it actually makes mm. a lot of sense because in 1979 was when you were told, right? Or, you know, the, the, when um, uh, Vietnam came and liberated us from the Khmer Rouge. And so I was like, yeah, that actually makes a lot of sense because you said I was born during that time. And so, and then they said it was sometime around New Year's. So my birthday is April 1st, 1978, right? So, um, uh, but my dad says otherwise. So I get to celebrate 30 twice that year. Uh, and that's like the second year. Oh, huh. So I think, you know, I share that story because it's the story of many of us who are, who came in as a young survivor. Like I didn't, realized I was a survivor until I started doing this work. You know, I was seven years old when I was, when I landed in the Bronx and we were resettled in the Bronx and we stayed ever since. And so I am a refugee child, but I'm also a Bronx girl. Um, so folks get really complicated and don't understand. Sometimes they're like, wait, your accent, you know, mm -hmm. all the time. But I think that that history really grounded me in why we started Mekong and who I am. So and why I'm committed to our community and why I'm committed to building community and also the healing and the organizing and the, the, the process of 
um, addressing like trauma in our community, intergenerational trauma. So not only I'm a survivor, but I want to be part of the healing process of our people as well. So that's a little bit of how I uh, came to the Bronx and got to where I'm, what I'm doing. Wow, salute to you. Um, I love your Bronx, your New York accent. (laughs) (laughs) I don't realize it. You know, you, I don't realize that an accent until people tell me, right? I'm like, what are you talking about? They're like, look at you, look at you with your hand. And I talk with my hands, you know, it's Mm -hmm. like a whole, so, and then I'm like, oh God, I, I was never before, you know, like just growing up in the Bronx, like that's all you knew. And like, you know, and I don't know if you recall this, but the Bronx, you know, the war on drugs was real. And we were basically resettled in like horrible housing conditions in the poorest neighborhoods, uh, in already marginalized, disinvested neighborhoods in black and brown communities. And so, you know, coming from literally one war zone to another, Mm. you know, and so, um, and that's actually a little bit uh, of what, the work that I do around, um, you know, understanding what it means for us to be free and liberated, right? You're, you know, I'm in Mekong statement with other communities of color who already lived here when we were here. And so, um, so growing up in the 80s and seeing, you know, I was Fordham Road, I, I grew up on Fordham, you know, and so like just uh, such huge disinvestment, the Bronx is literally burning, right? And so, so for me, it was like, it's actually an honor to be able to be grown and bred and raised in the Bronx. Hip hop, you know, grew out of the Bronx. And so I grew out of the Bronx. And so, um, but one thing I realized is that the Bronx wasn't very different from refugee camps that I grew up in. And so those are the kind of connections I want my people and our people to have when we talk about social justice in this country, right? That we, we, we didn't come because like, you know, America was like, we should save them. No, actually, there was a lot of organizing from the civil rights movement to really bring us here. So, yes, we're here because of the Refugee Resettlement Act. But we're actually alive because of the Black organizers that organized and, and went to interview folks in the refugee camp and advocated for our very existence and our life here in the United States. So a very complex history. And I look at the work that I do through those lens and my personal and political life and work life that it actually is personal for me is very political um because the reason why like I tell my uncle I don't know like he's always like oh you know Chaya is always um or they don't say Chaya like Chaya you know (laughs) is always into politics and political and you buy and I was like I have to like the reason you don't get your diabetic medicine is because it's politics you know, the reason why our folks are being deported is because of politics. The reason that we continue to be re-traumatized, re-triggered, you know, and our community continue to suffer from, you know, the war in Southeast Asia is because of politics. So telling me not to be invested in politics or organizing is telling me not to love my people, my uncle, my family, my community. So I hope other folks can join and be part of that. I'm learning and I'm visualizing what you're saying. And um, you're right. I agree with the with what you're saying about politics. You know, like they like whether they like it or not, are like the reason mm-hmm. my Americans are here is due to a political decision. And, you know, everything's politics. You know, people have to vote for for things, for policies, for for laws. And just so, you know, 
And I think with everything that was going on, like um, yeah. within the last year, you know, it opened my eyes because I'm learning a lot from what's going on with like, uh, you know, like police brutality and stuff like that. I'm like, you know, just trying to do my part and sign petitions, share links to help like, you know, the whole George Floyd That's situation. Right. So I was like, dang. So that made me want to really like read yeah. more literature on what's going on because, you know, like you said, like because of the civil rights movement, we are here, you know, the black civil rights movement. That's right. So That's right. I learned that and I, more recently. I, <laughs> Thank you. And I, I really appreciate you bringing George Floyd and all the other folks that killed by police brutality, especially Black people. You know, I, it has been really just like uh, the, it's the mind work, but also the heart work, right? To understand what's happening in, in the, the America that we live in. And the America that we live in is an America that actually hates Black people. Right. And so like this country is on is built on the hatred of black people. And so until, you know, I'm in a black body, I actually would never know what it means to be black, but I can be in solidarity. And what I mean by us being in solidarity to your point, yes, the petitions, all that stuff going out in rallies, my daughter and I going every day because if black people are free, we will also be free. Right. And I think that our folks are don't believe that because we have so much anti-blackness built in our consciousness and in our living, you know, even in the terms like, you know, all that stuff that people talk about and like, yes, we actually need to change. There are some cultural things in our community that like, that devalue blackness, even like you and me are like considered dark, you know? Mm -hmm. And so, and whiteness is, is beautiful and things that, so there's things that we can start, talking about in our community that actually have us begin to talk about where anti-blackness come from like what what is the hatred of black people come from where does that come from and i think about george floyd in the in minneapolis and the organizing that happened in minnesota and you know one of the biggest lessons for me um and i would love to hear what your lessons were you know like one of the biggest lessons for me was i Frogtown. Frogtown was where like folks started organizing where Target was at. So like all the Asians and like all the small businesses were all Southeast Asian businesses in that neighborhood. And so um, one of my friends, you know, who's an organizer was like, fuck Target. People are dying. You know, like we will value property more than we do lives, you know. And so with that, what I learned is that Frogtown was uh, the reason why Southeast Asian business was there is only because they didn't allow Black business to, to thrive or to even open. So, um, you know, in the Bronx for a very long time, then we've been trying to build, like, can you imagine a little Southeast Asian in the Bronx? We have the largest population of Southeast Asians. I had to come to a place of, like, understanding, like, actually, we have to actually honor the history of the people that were here before us that couldn't even open up stores because of redlining. They couldn't live in this neighborhood because of redlining, because of laws that were placed to basically keep Black people in place. And so, you know, now we're, we're that's a lesson for us, you know, like, we're not going to call claim to any land, you know, especially this is Indigenous land. And so what we're going to do as Southeast Asian is create opportunities and and to engage with other uh, communities, you know, um, and bring our own analysis and our own experiences to talk about trauma, to talk about displacement, 
to talk about what it means to be displaced so many times in your lifetime. And, you know, like we, we could, the correlation is the organizing that people are doing around housing um, and, and people living, move, being gentrified, neighborhoods being gentrified, right? So like um, as displaced people, like I know that our narrative and our experience is critical in the analysis and in the policy and in the storytelling um, and in the changing of heart and minds of policy around gentrification. So I always find an opportunity um, to share our story so that our story can free other people as well. And so, um, you know, that's the, the work that we need to do as artists like yourself, as activists like my organizer, you know? And so I'm glad you, um, are engaging and thinking in that because their liberation is so tied to us. Um, and and to, to also say that uh, we actually need to be really pro-Black, like support Black businesses, Black people. And until we're in Black bodies, we will never know what it means to be Black. And like their body is constantly being attacked, right? You know, Black bodies. And so I can wear cornrows and it'll be beautiful, but a Black woman will you know, can't wear cornrows and be called beautiful. Um, she's called ghetto, all these other things. So we got to think about like those small things. Um, and a point that I want to make, uh, I'm trying to think of how to put this, is that um, I know my parents, our parents who lost people during the genocide, during the Khmer Rouge regime, during the war, in transition to this country, in this country, being separated, like we've been calling for justice forever, right? So every day, and I hope that our community understands that when Black people are calling for justice for 400 years that they've been in slavery in this country, that we understand that their calling is our calling for justice too. And so I, I really want to like um, stress that because if we're still calling for justice for our people in our community and you could call justice for another community, then do that, right? Do that. And that means in our community addressing anti-Blackness, you know, um, supporting Black business, all that stuff that comes with it. There are performative stuff where people perform, wear t-shirts, raise their fists, you know, all that stuff. So being pro-Black is actually really important and doing things that uplift Black Black leadership is also very important. I totally agree with that. So what was it like growing up in, in the Bronx in the 80s and 90s? What what type of like uh, challenges did you face besides like what you already mm. mentioned? Um, I, you know, when you're a child, you see, you see everything from such a, a beautiful lens. Like even in a refugee camp, I was like, uh, they would have theaters and, and you just didn't realize you were living in a refugee camp, right? So, and I didn't realize I was living in the hood or the ghettos of the Bronx. And so I built really amazing friendships, um, um, had a lot of supportive teacher, uh, but violence was always there. My parents getting mugged, my aunt getting mugged, my, my uncle who was in, in high school was getting jumped, so they joined gangs, you know, and so to protect themselves. So um, for me, it, the struggle um, I realized later on is it wasn't just a Southeast Asian struggle. It was a, a struggle of uh, an America that did that hated hated um, poor people, you know, that kept people poor, 
that kept people um, divided, that created wedges, that um, uplift white supremacy. Um, and so when I was growing up, it was, I was really like, I, there was a sense of community though. People protected me. There were people protecting me, but because the system failed us, the system didn't create policies and, and resources for communities, community fought for whatever was there, right? And so the root cause isn't, you know, what's his name mugging my mom? Like I had to really struggle with that because there's harm caused, you know, and look at the, the rise in anti-Asian violence now, you know, like calling for more policing, but we know more policing means more black bodies in jail, right? And so right. we we're not gonna do that. Um, so um so yeah, growing up was um growing up in the Bronx made me really hard. <laughs> you know, <laughs> like like don't mess with me kind of attitude all the time. But I think that's the kind of attitude you need to have like in order to survive in this brutal system in this country that hates Black people that treats poor people uh, in such inhumane way. And we think about like human rights violation outside of the U.S. It's happening here in the U.S. every day, you know. Mm. And so um, and it's a job that, you know, as we live in the belly of the beast to call out those things. Right. And um, I don't know if that really answered your question around growing up. No, it does. But, it does. Um one thing that stood out was like the like the muggings, the jumpings. Uh, I remember when I was growing up in Seattle, like mm-hmm. uh, uh, I remember like my my dad's. He was he was anti-black, you know. He said you know, we got the Kamal Lloyd plotting, you know. Like, do you think mm-hmm. that's why they are anti-black? Because of like you know, some of us were the first generation Kamai, like you know, they they experienced maybe like robbings or muggings or whatever, and, and they think because of one one person they want to just be like all all black people are bad or thieves or whatever you think that kind of like maybe where the anti-blackness started within our like our parents like a lot of like my parents back in the day they were just right off the gate like Mm. prejudice or whatever they just didn't know or we were Mm. like you know poor too so and we're immigrants so racism was a thing as well so yeah anti-immigrant is real and so to to your to your question, uh, yes, I'm sure that informed what what uh, they thought about black people. Um, but this happened even with the way we, like the the formation of teaching us to like hate black people, hate black skin happened even before we came to this country, before we even landed here, right? And right. so inserting us into urban poverty with other communities who were poor, these harms are gonna be caused right like in whenever we're in community harm is going to be caused and it's how we struggle through it is important right and so um yes the individual experience informed that but i remember watching cops i don't know in the refugee camps like they have you know little tvs and things like that that you can go watch and like there was a a sense of like just um that was embedded. Like, you, I, do you remember cops? Do, yeah, right? bad boys, so bad boys. Bad boys. What you gonna do? Yeah. <laughs> I used to watch that show. Come for you. Yeah. And it's always black folks. Right. You know, right. No. Now that I look back, so they, it's like, it's always that way. Always, always. And here's right. the other thing. 
when we were at war in Southeast Asia, when they were bombing us, right, most of the people in the front line fight were black and brown people who were put to, in the front to like kill, shoot people, right? And so you have the white commanders. And then we go to the refugee camps. All you see is the UN workers, all white folks saving us, right? And then you come to the Bronx, you come to the United States, you put in these neighborhoods where all people that are causing harm are black, brown people. So these systems that were set up um, were set up for us to Im uh, imagine an America, uh, to believe in an America that was about white savior. And so I think about that journey and I think about that history uh, because it's so connected. It is going to be so connected to our liberation, and particularly our fight for, to end the deportation and returning our people back from Cambodia, Vietnam, and Laos. So, you know, um, I think about our, how the U.S. created this huge impact, right? And basically slaughtered people in Southeast Asia, secret war, secret bombings. Um, so all to say that, yes, it's through individual experience, but it's also through a very uh, systematic uh, ways in which, uh, you know, uh, the white savior complex got played into our existence as well. Like, I don't know, do you, that says, oh, America save us. Is that something like that? You hear that, right? I think so. Yeah. Yeah. But they also bombed us. I mean, yeah. you know, and, then, and that's the thing we see violent very in a very narrow way. Like is violent that I'm hungry is violent that my aunt don't have her diabetes medicine is violent that I live in poor housing conditions. It's violent that I'm working at, for $5 an hour in this fucking factory. Mm. That's violent. And yes, and it's also violent when you're beating your wife. And it's also violent when Boo is being his kids. Like, you know, if we're going to talk about violence and, 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 and want to denounce violence, is it because the violence that we denounce is from Black people, but we can't denounce violence from white people or from each other? And so that's the question I would want to pose for us to think about because that's a moment of growth for our people, right? So that, and that's the work of Mekong. It's, and that's my work too, as we move into, through this pandemic, as we move into this, you know, fight for racial justice in this country, um, that those are the questions and these are the moments of growth that we need to engage our family, our brothers and sisters in conversation because violence is right in our home. Correct. When did you start Mekong? And uh, what what what? How did you decide to start it? The the organization. What led you to form it? Yeah, um, I was doing youth organizing through um called CAV, and through that we ran something called the Youth Leadership Project, and it was all the only program for Southeast Asian young people in New York City in the Bronx. And I became director of that program, and through that process, and this is very young, like you know, we were advocates before we even knew we were advocates at. Uh, health clinics at you know food stamps lines at food stamp centers and things like that so organizing and advocacy work came really natural to me um because I was doing that for my grandmother for my mom you know for my aunt making sure that that going to fight people at the food stamp centers and arguing mm -hmm. about why their food stamps are getting cut you know and why you know they're not paying our rent and things like that so it was through my own personal experience that I began to envision an organization like Mekong that can really serve the Southeast Asian community in New York City. And so 
we decided through that organization to build another organization that wasn't because it was a pan-Asian organization at mm -hmm. the CAD. And we wanted to build an organization in the Bronx led by particularly women and queer folks of Southeast Asian descent. And so Mekong was really founded by women and queer folks to organize, to build community and to fight for social justice here in the Bronx. And there was a deep recognition that, you know, it was 20 years uh, we were already resettled about 20 something years and our community remained the same. And, you know, and then we were getting deported and our food stamps and welfares were getting cut. So we realized that our community have not grown. Like our community is a product of all these failed policy, U.S. policy consistently. And not just us, but other black brown communities too, you know. Um, and so we wanted to start an organization that one, uh, valued the leadership of women and queer folks. That's one. Two, that really addressed the failed refugee resettlement process here in the United States and particularly in the Bronx, New York City, um, that prioritized like intergenerational uh, cultural work with each other, right? That prioritized organizing and advocacy work, um, but really at the root of it to fight for social justice um, in a way that the most Khmer way that we can be, the most Vietnamese way that we can be. And so, you know, we are a Vietnamese and Cambodian-led organization. Um, and so we take pride in that. We only hire from the neighborhood in the Bronx. Uh, but we've hired in the last couple of years, people from Brooklyn, Vietnamese and Cambodian folk, you know. So as we grow, um, our intention um, as the only Southeast Asian organization in New York City is to serve, organize, and build community power. And what that can look like can be many things, but um, I think one thing for sure for us is that when we talk about trauma, we know that, you know, we've come to also realize that healing is really a lifelong process, but we need justice now, right? And so what that means is we get our people organized on the street to fight for George Floyd, to fight for Breonna Taylor, like all the stuff to fight for our people return to, to um, back from Cambodia and Vietnam and Laos. So, um, so as we do the healing cultural work, the intergenerational work, uh, we are committed also to building like uh, a social justice movement to be part of a movement that will inspire other generations that will leave behind, you know, what generations um, of folks are going to come before us. And yeah, I mean, after us. After. <laughs> yeah, not before. Before us too, because they need justice too, the right. generations before us. I think first time we met, I think I met you through Bang Narin. I think it was like a yeah. deportation event or some some sort of, or it was in, a, we went to Bronx, me and Narin. Yes, and a friend, we went at to Manhattan College. Yes, yeah. we were doing yes a symposium. Mm -hmm. Symposium. I remember that. So you know, and at the time, I was I asked you about like a citizenship because I lost my citizenship, but it was pretty basic. I finally I finally took care of that now, and I just got my passport. So it was you know I just kind of congrats. Now you can travel yeah. the world. <laughs> yeah, so it took a lot of weight off my shoulder. You know. You know, it wasn't it wasn't too bad. I, I thought the process was more difficult than it was, you know, just but it was actually pretty straightforward. Pay the fee, mm. sign your name. <laughs> so yeah. And just 
so happy to have my passport. Now I can't travel because of the pandemic. So how you been holding up with mm. the with the whole panoramic of the pandemic? <laughs> oh my goodness! I mean, from remote lo- learning, uh, three kids remote learning for me, remote working from like me running an organization that was doing on the ground work of mm. like giving families money, uh, uh, doing care packages for our seniors and our elder, like all folks who've lost their jobs. Mm. Um, so, I mean, at one point I was like, am I even breathing, you know? And, and, and then my family catching COVID, uh, five households, you know, uh, scared me to death. Um, and, made me feel like even through that process I felt really guilty because my dad is 70 you know and like he he survived it and I'm like this other 70 year old person that I know who's like this amazing artist quirky me I don't know you know had caught at the same time my parents did and he didn't survive and so you know I I think there is a lot of emotional reckoning there's a lot of just like healing and mental health needs that we need we need um I don't sleep as much I don't know if other folks sleep. Part of it is because we're social being, um, but it just feels uh, so isolated. And especially for our elders who, you know, when we deliver, I tell you this, like um, I, we always knew that, you know, violence, domestic violence existed in families in our communities. And when we were right. delivering care packages, um, finding out things like that, like home is not safe for everybody. Um, and then trying to figure out like how to get someone out of that, how to get these kids out of these situations. And so, you know, learning so much closely, so much more about the needs of the community. Um, and it's been really stressful. I haven't found, I mean, the only silver lining is that like my kids and I are really close. Mommy's always away at work all the time, you know, and so, um, on a personal level, you know, things like that, but also like, I'm really concerned about my kids' mental health, you know, um, my son who had caught COVID, he's like, I'm so depressed when that was happening and, Mm. you know, having to like talk to him every day and, and, you know, making sure that he was okay. And so the work isn't done. This pandemic has not shown itself completely. And I am really scared. I am scared that there are so many re-triggering or trauma for our community members. And so I look forward to seeing what like collective healing would look like and our work for Mekong in the future and for organizations who are on the ground and for people. I can imagine what, what the healing process can look like. And um, I know it's going to take a collective process. And so, um, but it's going to be a lifelong process. Right. So you said you had your kids catch COVID, like yeah, in your household, like more than one or. So I live in a multi generational household. You know that that's the only way I can afford to live in mm-hmm. New York City with the pay that I get as a nonprofit executive, <laughs> you know, things mm-hmm. like that. And so on the first floor is my mom, the second floor is my aunt, third floor is my family, right? And so, thank goodness because it really does take a village to raise the kids. <laughs> in in this time in this period and so for my dad was like don't let anyone come in my house he was always even when I went downstairs he was masked up and we live in the same household because he knew I was going out you know mm. and the majority of my my family member worked in the hospital mm. and so we had to be very thoughtful and careful like they had to like take the clothes off our side you know things like that so like we were trying to like distance ourselves within the three-generation household 
And so New Year's Eve, I think New Year's, like we, a couple of days after that, we like got our youngest, uh, my niece, who's our youngest baby, uh, her birthday. And then she, one of our family member was like not feeling good. And I was like, hmm, this is not, <laughs> I don't know if we should be doing this, even though some of us wore masks. So like for a whole year, my dad kept people out of his house. And that, that one, that 30 minutes of coming together was how uh, COVID got passed. Um, and so one after another, you don't understand, 15 household, 15 people, five household. I had to like monitor every single day. And I had, and you know, I had to cook for them because meanwhile, I'm doing like a renovation in my kitchen. So I didn't even have a kitchen. So I had to like buy instant pot <laughs> to make, mm-hmm. um, you know, the ball, snow, all the stuff that, you know, I could I make them longer, you know? Yeah. And so buying vitamin C, vitamin D, testing their monitor for their um, uh, oxygen level every day. Like I was like anxiety driven. Like I couldn't sleep at night. Meanwhile, I was still working. So meanwhile, meanwhile, I was still running an organization. Grants were due. Grant, you know, wow. people payroll needs to be met. So all that stuff. And so um, I'm still trying to figure out what that impact for me is. And when I have time to reflect, I will. And when I have time to sort of breathe, I'm sure that I will be rushed with emotions. And I'm going to take it as it is because I know I'm not the only one that feels like this. Um, sadness, joy, pain, all at the same time. And so... Um, I, yeah, so it was really, really hard and, and, you know, hoping that you don't lose someone, you know, and, and every day it's like 2000 people die, 3000, you're like, you're like hoping that it's not one of your family members, but then you also feel guilty because somebody's family member is dying, you know? And so it's, it's a mind trip and a half. It was, it was really challenging. Yeah. Seriously. You're a superwoman, you know, just doing God's work, man. It's so thankful for you. I learned from my mom, from my grandmother, my mom, the matriarchs of our family. Mekong. What is that annual event that you do that I keep missing? Um, can you talk about that? Yeah, we, you know, we do um, annual um, New Year's celebration every year. It is the biggest, one of the biggest celebration. We only probably have two, you know, our community is really small in New York. Um, so there's usually only one to two parties that are being put together. And you know how important New Year's is for Khmer people. I mean, the way Khmer people celebrate is so Khmer. It's like my Christmas, you know. Yes. <laughs> I look forward to April more than I do in December, for sure. For, for real. Sure. Yeah. For sure. It's like Khmer New Year. It's like Christmas, Thanksgiving, New Year combined. Right. You know what I'm saying? And like when you see the way people in so Khmer celebrate, you're just like, oh my God, you know? And so... Um, I was I went back to Sokmai with my daughter in 2019, actually right before the pandemic hit, um, to do some to that's another story, but like we were doing some art and healing work out with another organization. And so I brought her and a group of young people with us, right? Because Mekong also has a youth program. And so, you know, she was like, my goodness, like just the way like people celebrated, and this wasn't even New Year, it was like or something like that. And um, and like for a whole month, she's like, "Ma, I gotta come back in April." I'm like, "No, April is like a hundred degrees in Sokmaya, if you could take it." But th- that annual event um, is what you, you keep missing. But we have so many other events throughout the year because we also celebrate that, which is Lunar New Year in Vietnam. 
in Vietnamese. And that for them, that's also like Christmas, Thanksgiving, New Year's combined, you know? And so um, I think if, if there are moments where we can celebrate our culture, when there's moments for us to celebrate joy, to bring community and people together, we do it. Um, along with other stuff, right? Going to the streets, organizing, mm-hmm. protesting at rallies. And um, and so I know, and I teach my daughter this, and like even in, in the organization, which is that our work as like healers, organizers, is also about like changing the culture of our community, right? Like we should keep what's good and we should take away what's bad in our culture. And so as she experienced, as young people experience these cultural things, you know, Yes, we dance, we have fun, but we also see that the man got way too drunk putting hands on his wife, you know, putting hands on his wife. So we're going to have to intervene. Like, nope, we don't celebrate that way. That, we're not cool with that. To see our culture in, in its wholeness, you know, the good and the bad. And we keep what's good and we don't keep what's bad. And I think that's the, that annual event for us is really about that. With the... COVID just getting worse. Uh, it's, it's looking like a mm. another virtual New Year this year, right? It, it, it don't, I don't see people opening yeah. for anything. So let me know if you guys have a virtual event. Yeah. I'd love to be involved. <laughs> you know? Yeah, that'll be dope. Now you can't say anything. You can't be like, I'm not here. I'm in Seattle. Mm, I'm in town, but, you, know? <laughs> you know? Going home is really important. Yeah. yeah. I was and going to go home last is year, actually really yeah. important. Yeah, I miss my uh my niece's birth. I didn't really I didn't get to meet my my niece. My sister had her first baby. Mm. But yeah, what it happened, you know. In this month, this year or last year? Last last April. Last New Year. She was the Khmer New Year baby. She she was born right on Khmer New Year. Wow. I think it was like 16th oh, or something. <laughs> and the crazy thing is she looks like me when I was a baby. Like <laughs> she has my facial features, like, wow. Wow. Really cute. Name's Amelia. I'm sorry you've missed that. But you'll meet her soon I, in I person, right? Facebook, Have you, you know, gone back yet? Um, not yet. Yeah. I'm still playing it safe. I haven't really even. I've been pretty, pretty uh cautious. I just go to a grocery store, get my food, and come back home. I don't, I don't go nowhere really. I went to that first spot, outdoor dining, a couple times, but this even, thing is even then, I still kind of you know nervous. But um, it's real. It's re- like people still don't believe it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like Subway. I haven't been on since uh, I've like, been on the subway since March of last year. Yeah, because I I wow. care for like my family, like my girl, my grand, my girl's grandma lives upstairs, so I don't, you know, I just more, you know, mm. for their sake, you know, I don't, I don't want to, you know, chlong it over there, you know, get them sick. Yeah, you know? and I think that's what people didn't understand. Like this is a public health issue. You know, it ain't just like. I, this ain't personal. If I'm asking you to, if you come in my house, I'm asking you to put on a mask, or I don't want to be sick. Like. And that that was like the hardest part, actually, in um, talking to our community members, because they're like, oh, you know, uh, but, you know, a lot of kids were still like going out and like doing things. And I'm just like, no, please, no more hookah, you know. Mm. Um, and so like and, you know, it became about policing behavior. But no, actually, if you understood what public health is, you would understand that what we do as an individual impacts other people. And so. um I'm glad you took those precautions and really stuck to it because look, it took 30 minutes for my family mm. and he worked in the hospital and he just got vaccinated a couple of days before, like his wow. first vaccination and he still caught it. And so, um, and that's the other thing, like vaccine isn't 
100 percent either but i encourage people to go get vaccinated because um hopefully we'll get to herd immunity soon um and i don't even know do you think that you could go into a crowd right now and be okay i don't know i feel crazy right yeah i get nervous seeing like people on like facebook live throwing yeah. parties karaoke events where they're even if it's a family event there's a lot of people in there and you're just partying like it's 1999 like, like yeah <laughs> you're nervous for them but Hopefully, you know, things will get better. I mean, you know, it takes all of us to like, yeah, you know, to get, mm-hmm. you know, and um, also, um, I wanted to touch on the Asian attacks, it's, it's been going on, mm. yeah, like uh, particular mo- a lot of it in the Bay Area, but I've seen some like in Queens just recently. Like, I'm on, I'm on TikTok and people posting a lot of like graphic footage of like elderly getting um attack for no reason so it was like and it's happening more and more um and i just want to like you know see what we can do to to help raise awareness violence against um asians been happening violence against black people have been happening violence against our senior has been happening and so i think this is a moment for us um and this is something that you know mekong is beginning to develop I think one of the things that we recognize is that we're not going to support anything that increases policing in our community. And so puts more programs into our senior centers, you know, and seniors. Like I've been fighting the city for a Southeast Asia senior centers in the Bronx for a long time. So my thing is like, if you want to talk about defunding the police, fund programs for seniors. And so um, here's the other thing I, I, I know is that um, uh, our community members still get mugged all the time but you know what we do we call his mother up and be like your son mugged this older woman in this com- in our community mm. and so can we have a conversation about that and so I know there's alternative to violence um, and I know there's alternative to accountability too so I think at the same tone in which we are um, hurt to see like elders in our community this way we should also be thinking about other ways that we can come together as a community, that we can grow, that we can challenge anti-Blackness, right? Because like for real, for real, that's like people see a Black person doing it. That's why it's so, it's so like bad, right? And things like that and like the way it's being framed in internally in our community. Yeah. And so um, I invite folks to think about those things. And I invite folks to think about what's been missing in our community that created these individuals' acts of violence, right? And like from systems. And so that we can challenge it and that we can fight for the money that we we pay taxes to, right? Um, If you can invest billions of dollars to NYPD, you can invest billions of dollars into youth programming, right? And I'm not talking about just like, you know, summer youth program. I'm talking about the young person who has two uncles for final order of deportation, who just lost his house, the parents just got divorced. And so where does he go? He goes to community-based organizations and people that he knows closest, not to the city, you know? And so um, for me, then, you know, like, let's talk about moving resources. Let's talk about how we can grow. What are the opportunities to hold each other accountable? And what does accountability look like? You know, like, so I always give this example, like we talk about this with our young people, you know, like um, 
you know, and this is a sensitive subject on many levels because like his parent, his dad would beat his mom like almost every day. And so, you know, he started talking about it, opening up about it. And then like, we're like, so what, are, what does justice look like for you? What does accountability look like for you? And so, you know, I think those are the questions we need to ask ourselves, right? And like, um, to where he was like, I, I don't want my dad in jail, right? Like, that's real. Um, but I want him to stop. So we have to have a conversation of how he needed to stop doing that. And so I, I have hope for our, the human race. I have hope for our people and other people to really lead in this sense of anger and injustice in a way that, that brings community together that allow us to see how we practice violence also in our own lives, you know, and think about how, like, as I'm surviving systems, as, I, as, as I'm surviving patriarchy, you know, I think about who's surviving me too, right? Um, um, so, you know, I'm angry, come from work, I'm like, damn it, you know, this thing is this and this and this, and, you know, I say, I'm like, leave me alone, I talk to my kids, you know, and I'm like, oh, goodness, like, you know, and so, um, I hope it is an opportunity for growth, both individually as a community and as a, a country. Thank you so much for, uh, you know, um, having a conversation with Chaya. I learned a lot about yeah. you. You got my full support and with a Mekong NYC. I see you guys doing nothing but great things for, for years to come. And um, thank you. You know, I just want to thank you so much and yes. wish your family a, uh, Happy New Year. Happy Lunar New Year. Yeah. And um, stay safe and stay healthy. And um, let me know um, how we how we can support. I'm, I'll leave all your info in the in the, you know, on the screen in the description as well. So people nice. can uh, learn more about Mekong. And if, if people want to get involved that are living in New York, they could uh, check out the website. And uh, do you guys serve all of New York City? Like say, mm -hmm. like. I'm in Brooklyn, so I got friends that live in Brooklyn that are Khmer, and it's always people hitting me up on DM. You know, where's it? Where the Khmer people at? Or where's the Khmer New Year's at? So I'm like, make mm. I'll yeah. just tell them make Of course, we have a community mm -hmm. here, and Chaya is the boss lady. <laughs> and you know, <laughs> let's be friends. Yes, that's right. We we are home. Home is Mekong, and that's why we called it Mekong, right? Because the river runs through all the three countries. And so, um, uh, what did you ask me if? If people could like uh, if, can get oh, involved with yeah, any communities yeah, yeah, yeah. related events um, and stuff like that, or if they need like help with like, you know, like, you know, we, filling out their citizenship yeah. and stuff like that. I could always point them to you. Everything, healthcare, citizenship, deportation uh, issues all that stuff we're like a one-stop shop deportation that's mm. you know in in five years we're we are hoping to pass a bill and on um, another time we could talk about it but you know like we believe in returning our people our brothers and sisters who've been deported back here home to their family and so we are committed to that building that national and international uh work to do that and so uh, right now, you know, we're, we're building different strategies. Uh, we're doing a lot of case management, freeing people from detention centers who've been there longer than 90 days, which is illegal. Mm. Um, so we do a lot of case management, 
post-conviction relief for folks, uh, fighting for people to be with family, you know, fighting for our family and our community and to have people be brought back home. So in five years, in four years, we'll celebrate the ending of this administration. And so it is sad that yesterday, you know, he went back and reneged on his moratorium on deportation. Um, so I think we're going to be still in a fight to bring people back under this administration. It's an ongoing fight. So for the ongoing. Longest, so. But we are bringing people back. People are being returned. That's so we good. are hopeful. It's, uh, you know, steps in the right direction and uh, can only get better from here. Mm. So. Thank you for all that you do and keep fighting the good fight, Chaya. And thank, I thank you so much. All right. All right. Take care. Okay. So thank you. Bye. Thank you. you too. Stay safe. Ciao, Leo.